As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me one of my first clients, a dear, dear old friend, and one of my heroes. Christy Turlington Burns is my guest today. Welcome to the podcast, my love. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you today. Yes. Um, Christy is here because of Every Mother Counts. She's the founder and her work in maternal health began after an experience in her own um, birth of her own daughter. In 2003, I can't believe we're this old. <laughs> and it was an experience that would later inspire her to direct and produce the documentary feature film entitled No Woman, No Cry, which is about the challenge, challenges women face throughout pregnancy and childbirth around the world. Under Christie's leadership, Every Mother Counts has invested nearly, get this, $21 million in programs across Africa, Latin America, South Asia and the U.S. most notably focused on making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. Before founding Every Mother Counts, which is when I met you, you received international acclaim as a model. You were on my walls in college, <laughs> representing the world's biggest fashion and beauty brands, of course. I'm sure our listener knows this. Uh, you were also the founder of Nuala, which was a yoga lifestyle brand in partnership with Puma. You were the co-founder of Sundari, which was so delicious, a skincare um, based a skincare line based on the principles of Ayurveda. And you also wrote a book, one of my favorites, Living Yoga, Creating a Life Practice. Um, you're the mom of two teenagers now. I can't even believe it. I remember when you were pregnant. You've been featured on magazines. Uh, you've been an influential person for a very long time before the word influencer was even coined. <laughs> And in March of 2016, notably, Every Mother Counts uh, was recognized as one of Fast Company Magazine's top 10 most innovative uh, not-for-profit companies, which I feel is important to note because I, I'm hoping that our listener today gets inspired to create for themselves and for their communities whatever they feel is needed. This is exactly what you did. I watched you do it. Mm -hmm. um, Every Mother Counts was founded in what year? Uh, 2010. Wow, it's that long. Yeah, oh, we're gaining on our, our 12th year. Um, but that, of course, came after two years of making No Man No Cry. So <laughs> it's like right. phases of the journey. <laughs> of course. A um, couple of last notes just about your history for context for our listener, which I think are important and notable. Um, you graduated cum laude from NYU's Gallatin School of Independent Studies. You okay. studied after that public health at Columbia at the Mailman School of Public Health. You currently serve on the Yale Nursing School 
Dean's Leadership Council, wow, and the Smithsonian Institute's American Women's History Initiative Advisory Committee. You've served previously on Harvard's Medical School Global Health Council. You have served uh, at the Harvard School Public Health Board of Dean's Advisors and the Advisory Board of NYU at their nursing school. Your passion is infectious. I've been a monthly donor for a really long time now. Oh, it's such a joy to see it happen, really. I saw that come through this morning, but I always note it and it makes me so happy and so um, just grateful to have that consistency and that support from you. Thank you yeah. so much. I'm so I'm so honored to do it. Um, but yeah, so since since that spring of 2010, all of these incredible initiatives have arisen. And now there is, and I'll include this for our listener below our show notes, of course, there's an advocacy toolkit, which I think is really important for um, advocating for birth options for women. You did a whole series called Giving Birth in America on various different states around the country and what it means to give birth and how easy is it to find other options and what's the story with midwifery and having a doula all of these options that people don't actually realize that they have, mm -hmm. you've made them available to people. You have, I feel, I like to say single-handedly, but I know it's not a single-handed <laughs> affair, but you have lowered the incidence of maternal mortality by hundreds of thousands across the world, I feel, with the work that you've done to bring awareness to this. And I would love to hear you talk about how this all came about. Yeah, well, it definitely was not me. Um, so many people have been working on this issue for decades. Um, I think just like anything, um, new perspectives and new voices bring energy to any kind of movement. Um, and this is one that certainly requires as many voices and perspectives at the table as possible. Um, so I'm doing my bit for my time, and then I'm going to be very happy to pass the torch to everyone. Um, but yeah, the, I think going from my, my own birth experience where I experienced the postpartum hemorrhage after delivery, I think my story, it's, it's interesting because, you know, your own story, it sort of evolves even for the people who uh, were in it and who literally experienced it. Um, with time and, and with space and with more information and knowledge. And when I look back at um, at my birth experience, I feel so lucky on, and like in addition to just being in the right place at the right time with the right people around me and feeling supported and, and cared for, which I knew then and I certainly know now, I go back to thinking how lucky I was that I had all the things in place that I actually advocate for everybody else, right? Like access to information, being planful about your pregnancy and starting a family. Uh, you know, many pregnancies do not start that way. And even if they're wanted, it sort of, you know, sets you back to not be in that place in your life where you are ready um, in your career, in, you know, with regard to your finances and, and, and you know, what you're able to, um, it's a, it's a, it's a huge investment uh, becoming a parent and, and raising a child, um, let alone more than one child in this, in this world today. Um, so yeah, I, I had this experience and once I started to learn the information afterwards, my, my immediate question to myself really was like, wow, now that I know what can I do? And I've tried to find as many ways as I can to, uh, to help educate more people about 
not only the scope of, of the issue globally in that, you know, hundreds of thousands of women and girls die every year, but those numbers, as you say, um, have gotten better. I believe just even one preventable death is a death too many. And so our goal really is to prevent any death um, that could be preventable. And the best way to do that is really to ensure that more women and childbearing people have access to the resources and information that will keep them um, safe and healthy uh, throughout their pregnancies, um, through their deliveries, and then postpartum. And then as one of my partners, grantee partners, but also just, you know, real thought partners, Chanel Portia Albert says, postpartum is forever. Um, and it's true. <laughs> it sure is true. I found... Um... Of course, the 2020 impact report, really, really helpful to understand the scope of everything that you're doing. One of the things that I skipped to is the birth maternal justice, uh, birth justice section. What I'm learning is that this country, the U.S., supposedly the most advanced, is facing a major maternal health crisis, which is disproportionately affecting black and indigenous people. And I really want to focus there because I think our listener is the kind of person who might love to learn a little more about this, be part of the change that you are initiating, you and your, your organization is initiating. And I would love to hear about this issue sort of writ large. Yeah. So, um, you know, everyone is shocked and surprised when they first learn um, that the United States is not number one or number two or number 40, for that matter. We actually are ranked 55th currently per the World Health Organization. And when I became a mom in 2003, we were ranked 41st. So we've continued to fall behind as many other countries um, in the global south have been making some you know, great strides towards uh, reducing the number of maternal deaths and morbidity in their countries with far less resources. So, you know, one of the things that really, I think that speaks to is the lack of political will that can really impact, and, and also just the, the functionality of a health system. Uh, there's a correlation to maternal health and functioning health systems. If you wanna know how, how strong and um, a health system is, you look at the maternal mortality numbers. And so to see ours going in the opposite direction when, as you say, we, we are so wealthy and um, do spend more per capita on healthcare than any other developed nation in the world, let alone underdeveloped nations. Um, so that's shocking, disappointing, outrageous, and all of the things. So when we started to, when we became a foundation um, after the film came out and after the campaign initially was launched, I think really I sort of took the, the film on the road and, and had so many great conversations with you know, everyday citizens, parents, families, and also those who have made that commitment to serve women and families in the healthcare um, spheres, and and then the policymakers and the folks that are making those kinds of decisions and and opportunities for for others. And in those conversations, time and time again, you know, kind of breaking it down. Well, you know, this is what's happening globally. This is what's happening uh, nationally, and then this is what's happening locally. And I think when we looked at the national statistics, and back in 2010 when we started, people weren't talking about the maternal health crisis in the United States, not at all. 
In fact, uh, one of my colleagues who leads our policy and advocacy work here, she was working on a, um, a report at the time working at Amnesty International, but focused on the United States maternal health crisis as we were um, editing the film. And our two pieces of work um, helped to inspire the first legislation that was introduced by Representative wow. Conyers, who's no longer with us, because no one was looking at it. And part of that first um, uh, effort was really to start to have more consistent reporting because without data, it's really hard to know really what you're dealing with. Like we knew the kind of overall numbers or in hearing um, testimony from a lot of women of color, you know, we, we were hearing these things anecdotally, but there wasn't the data to back it all up. And so that was a really critical piece um, of gathering information. And we're continuing to, to advocate for that. And that's starting to really improve at the state level um, across many of our United States. But the main things, right, when people ask, no matter where they're from, and they hear about the United States, like, why, what? And the things when I became a student of public health that I learned right away were, you know, first, our health system is broken. Second, you know, we have a, a real challenge around um, chronic illnesses in this country, uh, diabetes, obesity, hypertensive disorders. Um, these are very much on the rise. And, and, and we've been hearing about that for a number of years. Um, but the way that that impacts um, a pregnancy uh, or a person who is pregnant um, it, it makes things even more potentially risky and scary and dangerous. And so that's one factor. And then um, over-medicalization is a big factor. And I think that's in part why I wanted to choose a midwife and a doula to ensure an unmedicated um, birth experience for myself and my family, because I really didn't want to go down that path. And uh, our country is one, um, actually some states have very, very high um, C-section rates, which is also contributing to complications and um, subsequent, you know, mortality. Health. Yeah. And mortality. Yeah. Um, and so people always find that fascinating too, because you sort of think more access and more doctors is a good thing, but there's an expression that we use in this field, which is um, too little, too late, too much, too soon. And that's sort of the extremes of, of the crisis globally, really. Wow. Um, so you, you, you really, you know, it's sort of one woman at a time and what, what is best for her and how do you kind of wrap your arms around her to make sure that she has access to that emergency care if she needs it, but to also try to really support her in the physiological birthing process. Right. You know, I've spoken with Latham Thomas, as you know, and the U.S. is where Black and Indigenous women are two to three times more likely to die from complications of pregnancy and childbirth than white women regardless mm -hmm. of education, regardless of income, regardless of any other socioeconomic or health-related factors. This aspect of implicit bias and structural interpersonal racism, as you write in your report, make pregnancy far and childbirth far more dangerous for black and brown mothers. And I am, uh, it was news to me when I read it for the first time back those many years ago when you first started. I didn't, I hadn't known that, of course. And Maybe our listener didn't know either. The reality of life for black and brown women just entering a hospital is so scary because doctors automatically make these assumptions. They hold these implicit biases, not all doctors, obviously. Mm -hmm. And this is a real serious issue in this country. I think that we've made some strides since 2020 
in many regards. And I think also the other side, the side that is so super, super implicit, uh, implicitly biased, has also strengthened their sort of resolve. And that scares me. Yeah, it is very scary. In fact, um, there's a, a leading OB-GYN um, activist, birth justice activist and equity activist. And she, her name is Dr. Joya Creer Perry. Um, she always says about this reality that it's racism, not race, that's killing black mothers, black and brown mothers. Um, and again, that's something that I, you know, was sort of raised uh, along with the chronic disease and the over-medicalization in those early years. And yet I would say in the last couple of years, there is now like empirical evidence and data yeah. and testimony to back up um, those theories around racism in our system and our um, institutions. And so I think, you know, in this in this time, right, with COVID and uh, illuminating just how extreme the disparity, the health disparities are and racial disparities are in this country and globally, I think like people can't avoid talking about this uncomfortable truth, which is that racism is very, very much alive and very present in all of our institutions and deeply, deeply embedded into our systems. And so to unpack that is one thing to address the kind of in the here and now and how to really focus on the experience of our BIPOC folks as they interface with our medical systems without having a lot of trust, without having that, um, you know, that assurance that mm -hmm. people will do all that they can to make sure that they are safe and that they have a positive experience, which is how you kind of build trust, right? With right. regard to people seeking care um, in a timely way. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't help when women come to the emergency room to have a baby, but that's what will happen when people don't feel welcome in the system and they don't trust the people providing the care. And that's just it's so it's so awful because obviously there's the Hippocratic Oath um, and physicians when they take that path, they're there to give care and to be compassionate and to be empathetic. And I think the system itself doesn't help those folks to really, you know, it's hard on everybody. Um, the system isn't working for anyone. Um, and so you have a, a situation where providers and patients really are not, they're not the team that they need to be, um, which ensures not only agency, consent, and all the things that lead to better outcomes. It's interesting that you mentioned that I was watching a couple of the Giving Birth in America films across the U.S. and in so many cases, women end up for the first time in a nine, 10 month pregnancy getting care at the birth. They don't go, they don't go near a hospital until it's time to give birth and they're, you know, in labor ready to push. And then they show up at the hospital and then they're deemed because of these biases as irresponsible and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all of these flood of judgments fall upon them, which as you said, impact the care that they're offered. Mm -hmm. And that's what horrifies me the most. Um, you have a number of black and brown indigenous people of color led community-based grantees uh, mm -hmm. in your sort of organization. And I would love for our listener to learn how it works that Every Mother Counts raises money and then those grantees receive money to run birthing centers and so forth. I would love to hear how that process works so our listener can learn. Yeah. Well, when we when we started to be able to offer grants, 
we identified a few organizations globally. Uh, the United States was one of the countries, but um, I would say I think Haiti, Haiti, the U.S., and were our first two. And you know, it was a process to kind of you know hire a team and start to really look at what what kind of work did we want to um, to invest in and. Early days, I would say, you know, the human rights um, approach to this issue was very much top of mind and present in in my thinking and how I wanted to sort of look at this issue and how we wanted to frame it. And so, but figuring out, you know, where were the programs, where where were the, you know, what were the the things about the programs and what how how were they sort of looking at this issue and. In the early days, and still, I would say distance being such a big barrier for people to access care, you know, basic care, let alone emergency care, was very present to me. And, you know, you could imagine, you know, through my first film, No Woman, No Cry, like, you know, a country like Tanzania, where so many people live miles and miles and miles away from any kind of care. But you could actually look at that same kind of challenge here in the United States. I mean, New York, where I live, which is a very rural state, more rural than people would imagine, I think if you haven't visited here, but you're living in a rural state. I grew up in California, which is a rural state. Many of our United States have people living very, very far away from um, various levels of care, and that puts them at risk. You know, you just don't know um, with any pregnancy. You know, it's not one of those situations where you know you've had your fourth kid and it's all been smooth, so you know that that fourth kid is going to be is going to be easy, fast. Um, each one is a completely different, uh, mm. different child and, and experience. And so those films have really allowed us to kind of put a lens on a specific issue and problem and and then really with a with a hope that we're illuminating a model of care that is part of the solution. And so really the films and the grantees were always kind of coupled. Um, we could highlight an individual leading that work in their community. And we really believe in this idea of trust-based philanthropy, which is to really have the community-based person, individual leading that work, be the expert. Uh, we know a lot here, but our perspectives and our experiences aren't going to be as rooted in the community um, as they are. And so we really looked to them to be that expert on the ground. And there are certain, you know, kind of qualities that I think have brought the partners that we have today um, to the forefront. And it took many, many years to build those networks. And, you know, through one partner, you meet another partner and then another partner. And luckily in 2020, we were in at this inflection moment, not only because it was our 10 year anniversary, but also given the COVID that we had opportunities and more funding that came our way because of other relationships built to be able to say, well, wow, you know, now that, you know, there, there are so many people we've identified but haven't been able to make those commitments to. And we were in a position um, after a long time to be able to say we can add to this. And we actually doubled our grant making in the United States last year. And our goal is to continue to grow that, but to be able to ensure that there is that consistency across. Um, and sometimes, especially during the pandemic, but I would say anytime really, those needs can change. Uh, they can change quite quickly. And so, you know, you can go from having the needs of the community be like, we need just adequate PPE, right? In those early sure. days. Sure. Um, or it could be people are fearful of hospitals and birthing centers even, and even just going to see their, their care providers. So 
how do we create ways to keep them connected to the provider? And that worked in the way of um, telehealth. Uh, we had partners, you know, midwife partners who were sending care packages to their patients, their clients, and basically with a blood pressure cuff and a smartphone and, you know, a scale or whatever it might be that would allow them to have a sense of connectivity and consistency. That's really just so important, the continuity of care um, throughout this phase of our lives. But just in general, I think we, we don't want to be dropped <laughs> at yeah. these different moments, inflection moments in our, in our, in our sort of reproductive um, life. We have to have, once, once you kind of become uh, ready for this phase, it's sort of, you know, we want to, we want to ensure that there's, there's care and access to care across the whole, the whole spectrum. Yeah. I think we take it for granted so much that we have the option <laughs> to take care of ourselves we don't realize that so many people, it's not even a consideration because survival is the main goal and thrust mm -hmm. of every day. You made a film series, the latest, in fact, uh, on maternal health heroes. This is one that I can't wait to look at. It's called Delivering Hope. It takes viewers on a journey to meet these incredible humans who have these very powerful and empowering stories to tell. Uh, it was shot right after the pandemic shutdown began. And it basically centers individual stories to educate the general public on the issue, what the work is, and the people who have literally dedicated their lives voluntarily and livelihoods to saving mothers and babies. Were you on the ground with some of this shooting? How did it go? Where did you go? Who's in this series? Actually, this was one of the first series that I wasn't a part of the entire thing. We identified going into our 10th year, we were identifying like what stories we wanted to tell. And at this point, we know all of the partners and, um, and the women who are in the programs, whether it's the midwifery training programs, or we know everybody so well. Um, and so it was actually kind of an interesting phase, right, where I wasn't on the ground for every, every, <laughs> everything anymore, which was nice. But also, yeah. you know, we started, we were all actually in India at the beginning of the year, right before uh, lockdown. And so the crew and, and our group overlapped a bit, a bit there. And then they went on to Bangladesh and they'd already shot some footage in Guatemala where we have filmed a few times pri previously. So yeah, just nice. Again, like how I was saying in terms of my entry into this field, having new perspectives and new, new eyes and ears on something in that way, I guess that's one of the ways I've sort of been passing the baton. <laughs> so right. to have, you know, even with partners that I've known for a long time to have a new small team of um, filmmakers be with those, you know, maternal health um, heroes on the ground and to see that firsthand and to tell that story in a fresh way again was really remarkable. And, you know, we had plans to do a lot more, but that was not possible. But I felt so good about all that we were able to capture and um, editing those pieces and and really shining the light on those individual stories was, was so inspiring for us as a small team when we were all, you know, not able to do much. Um, and we were able to get those out by the end of the year in 2020. 
Um, I'm excited about new content we've been able to create um, most recently and planning ahead for what we're going to be able to do next year. It's exciting to be back at a place where we can keep those stories coming and amplifying women's voices and perspective. Totally. The trailer of the Indian trainees training to become midwives. Oh, gosh. I can't even handle it. The singing. I know. The singing about... So how proud to be a midwife and um, because midwife, I think some people that aren't familiar with midwifery and think of it as some old world thing, a midwife in its basic definition is, is it means with mother. It's like you are with mother. And I love just the symbolism of that um, in Spanish. It's con madre. That's what the midwife is called. And that means literally with mother. And I think that idea that to be in partnership, to be in lockstep with, you know, to be, have that connection. I know in my birth experiences, my midwife was, she was my, my North star, my, you know, like we locked eyes and it was like, this is my person, even though my spouse person was in the room and supporting me as well. It was like, Mm -hmm. no, this is my person. And we are doing this together and you are going to see me through. And so, you know, I, I don't know many people. I mean, I know, as you said, there are some some physicians that have those gifts as well, that bedside manner, that, that respect for the patient at that deep level. But for the most part, that's not their job. Their job is to provide care, but their job is to provide care in a more clinical way, in a clinical setting, and not that sort of very hands-on, very comforting, very holistic way. It's um it's wonderful to see that that's a part of their training. Their implicit training is that level of care and attention. And if that's not in their DNA, then that's not their work. Period. Wow. This, this is how it is. Yeah. We um I want to move us to the legislation piece, which I think is really really important for our listener to hear before we close. Um, Throughout last year, 2020, um, you, Every Mother Counts, helped to shape, introduce, or advance federal and state bills and policies that would improve maternal health, that would hold all the systems in the U.S. health system, institutions, companies, the government accountable to the individuals, the families, and the communities they're serving. Um, There are a couple of ones that I really want to focus on. There's uh, in the Senate, it's number 3424. In the House, it's number 6142. It's called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear about what this has meant for you and what is the current state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, the Momnibus idea, it's like cute and clever, but it really was the best name for this sort of collection of bills, actually. I think there are about 12 at this point that are all kind of underneath this umbrella. And I alluded to it earlier with that first bill that Representative Conyers had introduced in 2011, I think it was, it passed in 2018. So sometimes this stuff can really take a long time. Um, and the beauty of seeing over the years, the the number of policymakers and representatives find that co-sponsorship and support on both sides of the aisle, which is really important. Like families and health have to be, they should be bi- bipartisan and um, seeing that spirit across for these last few years, especially has been Oof. very hopeful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, 
I think the momentum really started to grow pretty significantly around this beautiful series in ProPublica called the Lost Mother series, where they really broke down, I think, several hundred stories and testimonies of, of women, um, the majority of whom were women of color, um, and their experiences. And those stories have really inspired this legislation. And then the leadership, of course, of Representative uh, Lauren Underwood from Illinois, who is the youngest elected Black member of Congress ever, and she also was a nurse and um, lost a very dear friend who worked at the CDC from a maternal uh, maternal death. Um, and so her uh, perspective and her energy and her leadership have really, I think, taken this work to another level to have that commitment. They established the Black Maternal Health Caucus. So uh, Representative Lauren Underwood and also Representative Alma Adams from North Carolina, who's part of the sort of older guard of the House, they mm-hmm. together have co-led this initiative. It's got hundreds of folks that are members of it. And they have really, um, I mean, we we are in constant touch with uh, their offices and staffers and, you know, really are pushing in support of the Build Back Better bill and trying to make sure that some of the components, if not all, as many as we possibly can, are included in that package. You know, the obvious things that are very top of note right now is the paid leave aspect. You know, when you look at it's, yes, we want to ensure moms are treated well and get through childbirth and their delivery in, you know, alive. Um, But in in terms of addressing, you know, the root causes, the, uh, the sort of all the things that really set a person up for success or failure, um, all of those things are collectively included in these bills. Um, They're very comprehensive and we're excited. I mean, things Mm -hmm. like extending Medicaid coverage for a whole year postpartum, that will be a game changer. Uh, Currently, currently, you know, there's something like six weeks of coverage. Um, California has something called Medi-Cal, which is very unique and the only state that has such a thing which makes sure that people have access regardless of even their their status as citizens, which is really important because you really don't want to shut anyone out of a health system if you're trying to take care of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're really excited about these bills. The Build Back Better is what we've been focused on the last few weeks. The inclusion of the Momnibus, which we've been working very closely on um, with so many representatives over the last many years. Um, and, you know, we'll see. In the ne- literally in the next couple of days, this is all happening. I think some voting was starting last night from what I heard. So we're just tracking it in real time. And wow. when we see the results, we'll be able to know where, what didn't make it, what did make it, what else, what do we need, what needs the most attention now. And that's a constantly moving um, target. Yeah. Yeah. The word, for our listener, just so you know, the word omnibus, without the M, indicates, in legal terms, it indicates a bill that is containing many different aspects of legislation to help or, you know, to pass whatever it is that they're trying to pass. So the addition of the M is what we were referencing is very cute because to make it into a momnibus bill is very, uh, it's very clever. 
Um, yeah. And so many of the bills sound the same. So, you know, there are enough now that you can get really tripped up and which one is which. There's the mommy, the mama, the, you know, that there's like, there's a lot. Um, but this is a good problem to have. Uh, for sure. So much better than it was, you know, 10 years ago when we were sure. trying to support the one bill, the one bill. Well, what's interesting is in the advocacy toolkit, you actually, actually in the 2020 impact report, you there is a list of no fewer than 20 different acts and bills. Oh, yeah. That's it's progress. Incredible. Yeah, that's, that's major progress. progress. What is your, before we close, I have a special little thank you for you. What is your dream for the future of this, aside from you handing the baton over to someone else, obviously, to continue the work? You know, when I started the work, I remember saying to people that, you know, my goal, and this is, remains the same, and it's, I guess it's, it's, it's more true today because Grace now is a woman. She's 18. Um, but my goal initially was by the time that she is of an age where she's thinking about whether she will want to be a mother or not, my my dream was that this that that maternal mortality would be the rare event that we all assume that it is. You know, I'm not hoping that she's going to become a mother anytime soon, but we're not close enough. We're not as close as I would have thought 18 years later, you know, um, and sometimes this kind of work really, it takes time and that can be discouraging at times for certain. I do feel today quite inspired, but you know, there's been ups and downs along the way, but yeah, looking at my, I would say, you know, again, you know, hoping that she's not thinking about this for another at least 10 years. I'm really hopeful that the next 10 years, given the momentum, given these bills, given the leadership, given so many factors that really do um, come together in order to make just the right combination that allows things to be possible. I feel that's within the reach right now and that that should help to continue to make faster change. And, you know, we're looking at all of those pieces, right? The implicit bias training that needs to happen in our institutions, using some of our films and content and curriculum that is really inclusive and focused on anti-racism so that our providers are, that's a part of the education right out, right out of the gate, that that's just, it's just a part of the way that, that we learn and teach and prepare people to interface with, with everyone. Mm. So yeah, is that a long answer? <laughs> no, that's a great answer. The The advocacy toolkit is something also that if you're listening to us and you are in any way in the medical field or the midwifery field and you haven't seen this, it's so helpful to read. It's a PDF. It's really easy to access. I'll have it just below here. It has everything on every issue, on the disparities, on what we need to start to think about the priorities of this particular uh, organization and then the sort of larger priorities overall. It defines advocacy. Like These are the things that we need to be talking about human to human in women's circles all over the place. This is how we can serve. And I think it's really important. This, this toolkit is incredible. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And the response has been really phenomenal. I think yeah. letting people see 
where they can put themselves in the conversation. And I right. think sometimes the language can be, um, it can be exclusive, it can feel intimidating, and just breaking it down. You know, advocacy is, is, is talking, sharing, it's passing along information. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to participate and to, and to help inform and educate others. Yeah. Last thing to just sort of break it down, the the sort of shared vision. What are you doing when you're an advocate? You're advocating for change. You're raising awareness. You're influencing providers and facilities. You're change, helping to change policy and changing policy. And you're building community around a shared uh, vision. So if you're listening and this has kind of got a little fire in your belly, this is important work and you can be a part of this in any way that you possibly can imagine um, with Every Mother Counts. I would like to close by saying, because I have this opportunity to share with you, when I became your yoga teacher, we are going back so far now, it's Mm got to be like 15, 16, I don't know how many years. Mm -hmm. You know, of course you had been somebody who was such a such a light to me in my life, not just as a model, but as somebody who took everything that you had gained in the world and put it into something so purposeful. And I watched you become a student, a post-grad student. I watched you become uh, a mother. All of those aspects, as I watched you evolve, your studentship shone through the strongest. It's not your beauty, even though that is just insane. It's not the way you run your household. Even that is just so real and perfect and loving and true. But it's your studentship that I admire the most. And it has inspired, you need to know that it has inspired mine for all these years. It still walks with me. It still informs Mm -hmm. how I work and how I listen and how I learn and how I act. And so I really want to thank you for that. I love you so much. I love you so much. I love studentship. I've never used that word, but I... I aspire to be a student always. Um, I think we need to stay curious and um, we can learn so much from each other. And I've learned so much from you. So thank Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. 
no nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health. Arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.